Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series on the second half of American history with the 21st podcast in this series. In the 20th podcast, we continued our discussion on the opening days of the First World War, which again at that time was known as the Great War. We continued to look at the advancements and evolution in new fighting tactics and ability. We reviewed the horrors of the, what became known as trench warfare, poison gas, landmines, the massive death toll it took on a daily basis. We specifically looked at as an example battle, that being the Battle of Verdun. We then quickly reviewed submarine warfare as well. The Zimmerman note and how and why America ultimately got pulled into the war on April 6th, 1917. We then, towards the end of that podcast, reviewed how the economy in America was mobilizing for war production by looking at the War Industries Board and the Food Administration Board, as well as the impact on women and minorities. We saw the way the government was also responding to rebellion and dissent and the recruitment through what became known as the Selective Service Act of 1917. So today we're going to continue with our overview of the First World War and then looking more specifically at how the average American was faring during this conflict. So we start this podcast specifically, though, by looking at the one major military commander on the American side, and that was General John J. Pershing. Every American conflict to this point and in subsequent conflicts usually can focus on two or more major military commanders that made a tremendous impact on the American side. There's more than a handful in World War II, a few in the Vietnam War, uh, the first Desert Storm in, in 19, uh, first war in the Middle East in 1991, several in the American Civil War, even a couple in the Mexican-American War, and a few besides George Washington in the Revolutionary War. But by and large, partly due to our relatively short duration in the conflict, there's really only one major commander appointed by President Woodrow Wilson. And again, that was General Pershing. His performance in that conflict was beyond extraordinary. And it's one of the reasons why to this day, he is the only, he is only the second general to actually be awarded the sixth star. He's also the only general to hold as many stars as that of George Washington. All the way up through to the American Civil War in March of 1864, the highest number of generals was only two stars. George Washington was the third star. And again, a quick reminder that the one star is your brigadier general, 
Major General is two, three is Lieutenant General, four is General, and five is General of the Army. John J. Pershing would be awarded posthumously the sixth star because as we progress to World War II, four stars would be, or World War I, four stars would be issued by World War II, five stars. But every time the American Congress, with consent of the president, increased the number of stars that an American military officer could earn, we simultaneously kicked up George Washington to the additional star so that he was always the one that held the most stars and was never on the same ground as any or same level as any other American commander. Because regardless of every conflict thereafter, no American military officer will ever put as much on the line as George Washington did. However, we bent those rules when we looked at the performance of General Pershing. Whereas we got on to five stars in the Second World War, we bumped up Washington and at the same time General Pershing. And the title with the six stars is one, excuse me, two through four stars is set out in a linear fashion on letterhead, on the lapels or the shoulders. Five stars is actually in the shape of a star like the Pentagon. The sixth star is actually in the middle. And that title is General of the Armies, plural. Pershing more than earned it. There could be a podcast by itself looking at the command of General Pershing. But this brief example, I think, will drive home the point of why the man earned the number of stars that he currently holds. There was an offense that was going to be launched by the Americans and the French onto a German camp. During the night, they snuck in and were outside of the camp. 30 American and French officers were about to invade as soon as the light, first light came up. No Germans, if they had anything to do with it, would wake up in their camp as the, they would be surprised by the American and French assault. As they approached the camp, General Pershing laid down on his stomach followed by his 29 other men. When the time came to move, General Pershing would, with a predetermined sound, make the equivalent of a bird call. It would be very soft. All of the soldiers wouldn't hear it. But the soldier behind him would, as he would face his, face his head or point his head in that direction towards the lower part of his body, so that his second rank in command right at his feet would be able to hear it and then relay that whistle down the line. It takes a few minutes, but this is all about trying to survive. So by the time it got down to the 30th officer, or 30th soldier, this 30th soldier would then also whistle, letting the person in front of him, the 29th, know that call received and heard and ready to go. And those whistle calls would go right up back the line, right up the line to General Pershing himself. Pershing made the sound starting the series, but his second in command didn't reply. He made it again, no response. Pershing then slowly, out of getting aggravated, of course, slowly 
moves backwards a few minutes and sure enough feels the soldier's helmet with his boot as they are aligned perfectly behind one another from head to toe, head to toe, all the way back. Pershing is in front. He's not one of these commanders that leads by pointing to a map and says, go there. He leads by saying, he led by saying, follow me. This is where we're going. So he assumed that the soldiers behind him, or at least the one immediately behind him, fell asleep. So with that, he feels the soldier's helmet, probably rolled his eyes, grunted himself a few, you know, a few times, moves over a few inches, and then starts, again, staying on his stomach, staying on his uh, completely flat, works his way down to the soldier right below him or behind him, only to find that the soldier was indeed there, but he wasn't sleeping. He was dead. His throat had been slit. He then, Pershing, continued to go all the way down the line until he got to the 30th soldier, who was also dead. No one will ever know why Pershing was spared. But what did he do? He moved on and made the raid anyhow. Of course, there's no way he could surprise the entire camp, but he did what he could to sabotage the camp, look for any type of battle plan, and possibly take out the top commander. He operated on his own and then returned to his own side. So that's what we're talking about when we mentioned that it's the kind of leadership we're looking at here with General John J. Pershing. The Allied offensive began in earnest in the middle of 1917. By spring of 1918, the British, French, and American alliance had turned the tide in favor of themselves. Russia, yes, surprised the Allies by signing a separate peace treaty with Germany, but Russia agreed not to enter the war even on the alliance side. That, remember again, Germany and the Austro-Hungarians. The Italians by this point were neutralized in the war as that was done pretty quickly. And again, rather than going into any specific battle of the First World War, just as I do in my classes, to give this overview of the important and salient features and aspects of the conflict that determines the answers or attempts to answer the larger questions of how and why. So for that reason, we're going to look at now that the reason for the ultimate Allied victory or Entente victory, if we still want to use that term, but again, Russia was out of it. But the ultimate victory by Great Britain, France, and America was the United States' entrance into the war. Unfortunately, again, is with almost, not every, but almost every major conflict in world history, sheer numbers determined the outcome of the war in favor of England, France, and the United States. And that brings us then to the end of World War I. And even though we're getting to the end here, I'm still going to discuss again what was going on in the United States at this time. There would be an initial armistice that would be signed where the sides agreed that for the time being, there would be no more engaging in hostilities. Both sides understanding that it will take time for that communication to traipse up and down the lines to travel from one point to another. But at 11 a.m. on November 11th of 1918, a preliminary armistice was signed by the Entente 
and the alliance powers. Because of the unique time that this document was signed, it is what retrospectively became known as the peace treaty of the 11th hour signed on the 11th day in the 11th month of 1918. Back in the United States, President Wilson was pushing for what became known as his 14 points. And I'm not going to cover all 14, but the most important ones had his ideas took, uh, took hold and were able to be reflected in the ensuing peace treaties is the first is that there would be creation of new countries that changed the old borders and separated the hostile countries. However, he called for open diplomacy. No more secret alliances, no more secret treaties. All parties would have to be invited to the table. This was beginning to grate the ears of the leaders in France and Great Britain. Wait a minute, President Wilson, you're telling us that you want to see the aggressor powers of the Austro-Hungarians and the German leadership and the Italians at our table? They weren't open to that. But as Wilson pleaded with them, this is what I'm talking about when I say open diplomacy. It was secrecy that got us in this conflict and extended it for as long as it did in the first place. The other idea that he called for was the creation of the League of Nations that would foster the new concept of collective security. Notice I did not say any kind of unique alliance. Collective security that all the countries that are part of it are equally protected and ensure their security equally among all. There's no way you can form an organization like that, an idea like that, in secrecy. It kills two birds, as they say, with one stone. While President Wilson was invited to arguably the largest ticker tape parade in world history up to that point when he arrived in Paris, as he and the Americans were lauded as major political heroes, once his ideas started to, he started to expound on his ideas at the Palace of Versailles, they wanted no part of what America was talking about. He might have been accepted with open arms into France, but they also couldn't be wait to quickly get rid of him. Yes, open arms welcomed him, but a proverbial foot in the rear end was kicking him out. Wilson was horrified. Hopefully, he thought, however, with the weight of the American Congress, that they would be their idea, his ideas would be able to prevail over the European counterparts. So let's take a quick glance at something that the average American history or world history book won't get into. And that's why it became apparent that the United States ideals, more specifically President Wilson's goals, were not shared by European leaders. If nothing more, look at the numbers as well as the percentages of the lives lost. Now, of course, I'm focusing on human life here as that is beyond the most important. I'm not even going to say it's of first importance because human life has no comparison, or at least it shouldn't. But remember, too, that the, that the American president left the United States 
in it com, in, to come to Europe and the United States he left was completely intact. There was no attack, any major army. There wasn't any army invasion at all. There was no naval attacks on the American soil. Yes, one single bomb went off at the Black Tom Rail Yard in New Jersey that was planted by German uh, spies. Now, that's, of course, something that would not be determined for years later. But that largely was the only, quote-unquote, damage as a result of America's involvement in World War I. Our harbors were intact. Our fields were left just as they were in 1914. We don't have anything to rebuild. So that alone was making the Europeans resentful that they are the ones that have to rebuild. And yet President Wilson's going to come over here and shove down our throats these utopian ideas. Now let's look at the most important if not the only thing that can be taken into consideration, and that again is the lives lost. Looking at military deaths and casualties by the end of the war, looking at just the Entente powers as they were originally formed, that being France, Great Britain, and Russia, France, France lost 1.4 million soldiers, Great Britain 885,000, Russia 1.81 million. Now remember too, Again, it's easy to see those statistics, and even some textbooks will give you that. But more importantly, look at the percentage of the population. Of the 1.4 million in France, that was 4.3% of their population, 2.2% in Great Britain, and one9 in Russia. And mind you, these again are just military. And the reason I stress that is we're not talking equally here male-female anywhere from infants to the elderly. The majority of those deaths were young, strong men. They were going to be the backbones that were going to rebuild Europe, who are now in graves. Thousands of them, millions of them, that would actually never see a legitimate grave because of the way they died or the location that they died. In terms of the former alliance powers, again, I know... Generally, we tend to focus on the victors, but I want to look on both sides here. For Germany, who lost 2 million soldiers or injured, that was 3.8% of its population. Austria lost 1.1 million, 3% of its population. And Italy, 651,000, 3.5% of its population. Now compare those numbers and the percentages to the United States. Please, I am not minimizing in any way the lives lost by American brave soldiers, not in the least. But out of those six major powers that I rattled off, the lowest number of soldiers lost was endured by Great Britain at 885,000 on the Entente side, 651,000 on the Alliance side. America? 116,516. As a percentage of our population, that was 0.13%. Of the victors that sat at that table, Great Britain and France, again, France lost the most, 4.3. Great Britain at 2.2. 
America is 0.13. Again, it doesn't take away the lives lost on behalf of the United States military. But this, these, those numbers, as well as the destroyed landscape and seashores, are the reasons why it was becoming apparent very, very quickly that Europe was not open to American ideology. Again, those are just the military deaths and injuries. Let's look at now the total casualty and deaths European-wide. Out of 65 million combatants on both sides, 41.7 million were injured. In terms of deaths, 20.7 million total. Russia lost more than any other nation. 9.7 million were military. Alliance powers, 4 million. Entente powers, 5.7 million. In terms of civilians, 11 million. Total wounded, 21 million. For a total cost to the United States, as well as its allies, of over $208 billion. This, again, just to stress why, again, the United States was finding itself not at all welcome by the French and British leaders once he attended, ex attempted to expound on his ideas of this notion of collective security. So what about President Wilson and his ability to perhaps get Congress to back him on this? Well, there was a major problem. While the peace treaty was initially, the armistice was signed in that first half of November, certainly that was a plus. Who could ever consider that a downside on the Allied, I mean, on the to Great Britain, France, and the United States? But President Wilson had received devastating news that because he got America involved literally 32 days after taking the oath of office for a second term, American angry voters through both houses in Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, they threw, they voted both houses to Republican majorities. What's worse is that when, when President Wilson formed his ideas and his 14 points, when he went to Europe to that huge welcoming set of ceremonies, he sure enough had an entourage with him, but they were majority Democrat. He had been ignoring the Republicans because he could. He, as a Democrat, had Democrats in majority in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. He could ignore, he could sideline or marginalize the Republicans. Not now. If he wants to get anything done, he's going to have to respond to American Republican demands. And the United States, through its election results in November of 1918, clearly were telling Congress that the United States is interested, far more interested in domestic problems than we are foreign, much less more specifically, European problems. So when the Paris Peace Conferences formed in 1919, that's when President Wilson was rebuked for his ideas and all 
former enemies of Great Britain and France were excluded. Even Russia, which had allied itself with Great Britain and France initially, was excluded. Italy, who was knocked out of the war almost as quickly as it entered, was excluded. The Austro-Hungarians, somehow that invitation also got lost in the mail. And maybe the Germans were invited, but their GPS went out, so I guess they lost their way. We might as well start the conference without them. That's right. Only the victors, if you want to look at it that way, Great Britain and France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, they were the only ones that were allowed to hammer out what would eventually become known as the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles, named because of its origins in the uh, Palace of Versailles, was extensive, very long. But there's a couple of points that I want to stress here, because these points are going to come back to haunt the human population, to haunt the human race in just a couple of decades from now. The first salient point was directed right at the Germans that they were to accept responsibility for the war. Now, oftentimes I get these quizzical looks on my faces of the faces of the students. Now, wait a minute. Everybody was down in the mud. Why just Germany? Because again, totally unprovoked, Germany invaded four countries, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, and then France. But wasn't the conflict between Serbia and Austria way over on the eastern side of the European continent? Exactly. But Germany invaded anyhow under the Schlieffen Plan to make sure that Austria would not be harassed as attempted to put Serbia in its place. Because of that, the French and the British put the sole responsibility on the conflict on Germany and by extension, the Austro-Hungarians. They, the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans, but the more Germans more specifically, would have to pay huge war debts to the tune of $778 billion, and that is in 2019 dollars. Uh, That's not adjusted for inflation. And please know that in addition to that massive payment, the, the uh, Germany had to give up prime real estate, specifically the industrial Ruhr Valley, the Tsar Basin, the Tsar Basin, excuse me. Those were the industrial and financial powerhouses of Germany. And those areas were stripped of them and taken over by France and Great Britain. So they had to give up prime real estate. That would be part, a major part of their ability to pay back that war debt. But it was under French and British occupation. Their armed forces would essentially be non-existent. So they get stripped of the military, stripped of prime real estate, and have to get the bill for the war. Now, Germany wants to somehow figure out, make the Austrians and the Hungarians and the Russians and the Italians pay. Hey, that's great. But that money's going to come from Germany. And just to set the record straight, please know that a common question that I ask my students, is, do you think Germany ever paid that bill at all, much less to completion? I've never had a class that has said, yeah, they probably did. They always say no. But please, for the record, know that the Germans did pay that back. 
the last 94 million euro payment. I notice what I'm saying when I say euro. The euro, the currency of Europe is extremely recent. That's how long it took them to pay it back. But on October 4th of 2010, Germany, Prime, Prime Minister at that point, Angela Merkel, or Chancellor, excuse me, wrote and signed the last 94 million euro payment, paying that war debt in the full, including interest. Now, how do you get the Germans to sign this if they weren't invited? Well, it suddenly then is when the invitation came, more of a demand, that German diplomats should arrive in Paris. And they did, were they under, under the idea that they would negotiate parts of the treaty. There was no discussion, no negotiation. They were forced to board a passenger rail car where they were to sign the treaty with no questions asked, with the international pressure of the other countries around them. They were forced to surrender on what became known as the Armistice Rail Car. Why do I call it that? Because that's the title. And that rail car would then be brought to a museum in Paris that would be called the Great War Museum. And they would honor and revere the rail car where they shoved Germany's face in the mud. If you have an opportunity, either stop it here, we're coming to the end of our podcast anyhow, or after this, look up on Google and type in Armistice, World War I Armistice rail car. It's on that rail car that Germany signed. Keep that image, bookmark that rail car, because that's not the last time I'm going to talk about it or the last time you're going to see it. That said, what does America do now? Specifically, President Wilson, what do you do now that you are having trouble trying to get America to jump on board with the League of Nations and sign this Treaty of Versailles? That's what we'll begin with in the next podcast as we bring the First World War to a close. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, always feel free to email me or book recommendations. Other than that, if you enjoyed what we discussed today, please leave me a review on the platform that you're listening. Have a great week.